gentlemen, my name is David. I have the privilege of leading our young adult ministry called The Porch. I've been on staff the last 11 years here and I'm excited to continue this series, Retold. Retold, if you've missed it, has been a look at stories from God's Word that we think everybody should know. And so we're continuing that tonight by looking at another story. Let me start um, with a little bit of a story that will frame up kind of where we're going. My grandfather died when I was like six or seven. He um, had cancer even the last couple years of his life. So while I have memories of him and him being alive, I didn't totally get to really know him. Uh, you know, I knew that he was enormous. When you're like five, everybody's enormous. I knew that he had spent time on a farm, and I knew that he wore Chaps cologne, which was like the manliest cologne of all time. And I knew that, um, you know, he went by Jack, my grandpa Jack. But through my grandmother, who lived much longer than he did, I was able to get to know him over years and years after he was gone. She would sit me down and she'd show pictures and stories of when they got married or his, you know, him out on the farm. He's just a huge farm boy in Wichita, Kansas. Here was him working as a security guard. Here's what his faith was like. Here's how much he loved my mom. Here's a picture of like him, you know, doing wrestling, being a professional wrestler, like in his 30s, not WWE, very different back then, but he was kind of some of what he was like. In, in fact, like, his name wasn't actually Jack. It was Cleo Monroe. He just went by Jack, and it was like, I would too, I guess. And uh, I just got to know what he was like through a person who spent 40 years with him, who knew him really, really well. And the reason I start there is because part of the reason that Jesus taught so many of the things that he did and part of what he did on the planet was he helped correct and help inform people on what our heavenly father is like. Just like my grandmother spent years and years, he knew my grandfather really well. Jesus spent eternity past with the heavenly father and knew him completely and fully. So tonight, or today, for the next handful of minutes, 30 minutes, famous last words, I want to look at three things that Jesus teaches us and taught that were radical ideas that still are today from Luke chapter 15 about what God is like. If you take notes, we're hearing firsthand from Jesus what God is like. Though I don't know uh, every single person here, I do know that all of us came in the room with flawed perspectives as it relates to what God is like. Maybe when you think of God, for whatever reason, you think of him as like a, you know, a big judge in the sky who at the end of your life is just there to say heaven or hell. Maybe you think of God and, and part of the way that you think of him is he's kind of a genie that you go to and, you know, when you need something, you're running late for work, and God help me to hit all the green lights or please help this to come through or help me to be successful here and you go to him whenever you're in need, similar to almost a genie. Maybe when you think of God, you wouldn't put it this way, but it's almost like the scorekeeper God. He's keeping a list of, you know, right and wrongs. He's checking it twice. He knows who's naughty and nice and that's some of what you think as it relates to God. Maybe when you think of God, Again, you wouldn't say this, but he resembles almost like a distant, maybe even disappointed father who when he really thinks about you, you know, he loves you and all that's true, but he really wishes you try a little harder. I don't know what you think about when you think about God, and I'm sure it's some mixture of all of those, but I do know that as it has been said, one of the most important things about a person is what they think about when they think about God. And it has tremendous implications for our faith, your ability to keep enduring in the faith, and just your, your peace and joy in life if we get that question wrong. Jesus 
spoke in Luke chapter 15, and he spoke to an audience that had two groups primarily in it. We'll look at those two groups in a second. But he launches into three back-to-back stories to correct, much like in today's audience, there are people where all of us have some flawed understanding of who God is. And he launches into correct, man, you don't know what God is like. This is what God, your heavenly Father, is actually like. So we're going to look at three things that he tells us about the God who is there and what he's actually like. We're starting in Luke chapter 15. Verse 1, this is by far the most detailed parable that Jesus ever told, ever told, and maybe the most famous of all the parables that he ever told. Starting in verse 1, it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Let me hit pause. When we hear sinner, we think, you know, kind of everybody's a sinner. At this day and age, they had basically classes of people, and one of those classes was a sinner. So in other words, you had the um, breakdown of society look like this. You had the really religious, godly people. Those are the religious leaders. Then you kind of had the average person just kind of going about their life. And then beneath them, you had the sinners. That was a group of people that because of decisions they'd made, they couldn't go worship at synagogue or go to church. They were told God didn't want anything to do with them, mainly because, you know, it seemed based on how they lived, they didn't want anything to do with God. And then even below them, you have the tax collectors. Tax collectors, don't think IRS, it's someone who basically had purchased the right to steal and cheat their fellow countrymen, their fellow Jewish neighbors. So they were a not-liked group of people and, uh, at the very bottom. And they also couldn't go to synagogue, couldn't go to church, because they basically abandoned their faith. And yet this group, the sinners and tax collectors, when Jesus, or God, walked on the planet, couldn't get enough of Jesus. And so Jesus has this audience around him of sinners and tax collectors, but there's also another group in the audience. It says this, verse 2. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. They're muttering, they're thinking, this guy, Jesus, he claims to be from God, yet he surrounds himself with really ungodly people. And Jesus knows they're muttering, and he knows that because Well, he's God, but he also knows one of the reasons they're doing that is because they have a flawed view of what God is actually like. And they're not the only ones. This group over here thinks that God doesn't like them or doesn't want anything to do with them because of the way that they act. And this group of religious people thinks that God does want something to do with them because of the way that they act. So he launches in saying, both of you guys have missed it. In three back-to-back stories, here's what he says. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. And you lose one. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I've lost, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So Jesus brings up, launches in, such a brilliant storyteller. He brings up a topic everybody then, just like everybody today, can relate to, losing something. And he points out that, hey, whenever you lose something, a very common thing happens, which is you begin to focus on what's lost, not on what is secure or what is found and still there. In other words, if you this morning were uh, trying to find your keys and you were like, hey, you know, honey, I can't find my keys. If your spouse responded with, yeah, but at least you still have your car. You'd be like, that doesn't help me. Of course, we all get it. Hey, I shift my focus onto what is lost, not on what is here. And Jesus says, that's exactly from heaven's perspective what God has done. When he looks at humanity, he looks out at the earth, 
His focus shifts on what is lost, on those who are lost. And when a person who is far, who is lost, who doesn't have faith in Christ, turns back to God, there's a celebration in heaven that takes place. And then he launches without even a chance for a Q&A into the next story. He says, here's another example. Maybe you didn't relate to the, the farming, agricultural thing. Maybe this will help. Or suppose a woman has 10 coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, says, rejoice with me. I've found my lost coin. Now, the coin thing kind of breaks down on us because we're like, oh, she lost the coin. Wow, that's aggressive. She needed a nickel? She's turning the house upside down for a nickel? No. In this culture, a dowry would have been given whenever a woman got married. And that dowry consisted of 10 coins she'd wear and kind of like a a purse around her neck. So this would be much closer to a wedding ring. So Jesus is not saying, hey, you know, you turn up the house for a nickel. We've all been there, right? He's saying when a woman loses her wedding ring, doesn't she turn the, you know, cushions upside down? She's not stopping until she finds that, right? She's going to intensely go after that. In other words, if you lost your wedding ring, you wouldn't be like, oh, that's cool. We got another one. I got plenty of those lying around. You would never stop until you found it. And then he concludes it with saying, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus looks at his audience and says, did you know that with the same intensity, a woman who lost her wedding ring is going to pursue trying to find that ring? God pursues people who are separated from him. To us, we may have heard that story before, but Jesus is introducing. God is not some distant, apathetic, uncaring. But his focus, his concern is deeply on those who are far from him. So much so, in other words, they are so valuable to him that he brings up a celebration any time a person is restored. What's interesting, this is the only time in the whole Bible, think about this, we're told a celebration in heaven happens. Not in a theoretical way. It literally says there is a party that goes down when this happens. Which reflects the value that clearly God has on this uniquely. Why do I say that reflects the value? Because whatever a person celebrates reflects what they value. Like if you're dating and engaged, man, this is just free advice. If you're here, you need to know this. You're going to get married to someone someday, likely, or maybe you're moving in that direction with that person. And they're going to have different things that they value that translate into how and what they celebrate. For example, they may be somebody that in their family, they grew up and they didn't do birthdays. They did birth weeks, birth months. And so they didn't have just one dinner off like you did. You grew up and maybe you're a December baby or a summer baby and it wasn't a big deal in your family. You're like, yeah, we just, you know, went to Golden Corral. That's what we did. And they were like, oh, oh, no, this is a marathon. We are going day after day. And if you don't know that, you're not going to celebrate in a way that reflects that you value what they value. Because whatever somebody values, they celebrate. Companies. What do companies do when they meet a certain quota? Because they value that. They throw a party. They give out bonuses. Cities, because they value a team winning, will throw a huge parade for the Super Bowl. Because they value winning. Whatever someone celebrates reflects what they value. And what and how they celebrate reflect that. The only time we're told in all of the Bible God throws a party in heaven is when someone who is far from him is restored. The clear idea that Jesus gives us is that God values lost people turning to him. God values lost people 
turning to him. When I read that story, it's easy, you know, for those of us who have been in church for a while, we kind of think of it like, yeah, no, God really cares about that lost person and cares about it. And I don't put myself as once in those shoes. I was once that person who was separated and far. In other words, if you're a believer in Christ, so were you. There was a party that took place with your name on it. You weren't present, but the angels were there and they were waiting for, oh my gosh, Sarah's about to put her faith in Jesus. Oh, get the confetti ready. And a party took place with your name on it in heaven. Because God values when lost people turn to him. The question I, I walk away with as I read this text is like, man, do I value? Like it's tremendously valuable to God. Is that tremendously seeing lost people come to know and turn to God through faith, is that what I value? Is that at the height of things that I would put on my list of value? And how am I doing at sharing my faith with people and sharing the message of Jesus with people who God really, really values and wants to see coming to a relationship with them? I don't know if this has been the case for you. COVID has not made this any easier, and this is a message that I need to be reminded of, of men. God really values the lost, do I? Jesus said, when he gave his mission statement in Luke chapter 19, I came to seek and save the lost. That's what I'm here. That's on my business card. That's what I'm here to do. Is that what I'm here to do? One thing that was really helpful, and like I said, I joined staff 11 years ago, and I never had seen leadership the way that there is leadership here that really, really values and prioritizes this. Jesus is all about seeing lost people and connecting with lost people and seeing them connect with Heavenly Father. Am I about it? And I can tell you, I've seen it firsthand for years. Our leadership is all about it. I remember the first breakfast that I ever had with Todd, which is, again, 11 years ago. We're sitting at a breakfast, and there's like three of us that were in a small group that he was leading. And, um, and the waiter comes up and asks what we wanted to eat. And I think he asked, like, how our day was going. And at some point, we flipped it back and said, it's going great. How are you doing? And he said this, oh, I'm doing amazing. My life has never been better. I, to which Todd responded and said, why is that? Well, I started this new vitamin regimen, changed my life. And Todd looked at him, and, and I was like, and he responded just without missing a beat. That's amazing. Well, hey, when you get back, I want to tell you about something that changed my life and hear more about those vitamins. The guy walks away, comes back. Todd shares the gospel with him. It was the smoothest thing I'd ever seen. I was like, it, my, it was like seeing Jordan jump off the free throw line to dunk. It was like. How did you do that? You weren't awkward. You didn't Jesus juke him like, this coffee's hot. You know what else is hot? Hell. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You just went smooth into it and were normal. And I've seen him do that over and over and over again. Because he, like so many in this body, and like our leadership here, values lost people returning to God, just like God values that. So Jesus, without giving a chance for them to, you know, respond, launches into a third story, probably the one you're most familiar with. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. Again, he's looking at this audience. Think about it. Put yourself there. It's a small group of people, maybe 30 people. He's outside and he looks into the faces of people who think God is so done with them. People dressed up well, religious leaders that think God is so for them. And he begins to tell this third story. There was a guy who had two sons. And the younger son, verse 12, said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, when his audience would have heard this, everyone would have gasped. Because here's what they would have heard. They didn't just hear, give me my share of the estate. They would have heard, hey, dad, here's an idea. How about we pretend like you're dead? 
Because when you die, I'm going to get an inheritance, and I'd like to just kind of get that out of the way. So how about we pretend like you're dead and we just get the show on the road, and I'm going to be on my way. Now, commentators point out, like, that would, it's so offensive in Jewish culture that he would have done such a thing. But it's offensive in any culture. In other words, the average father in the room is not going to respond well to a child who's like, hey, Dad, how about we just pretend like you're dead? And uh, because when you die, I'm going to get an inheritance and we'll move on. The average dad would probably be like, yeah, here's a better idea. Let's pretend you're dead and get back to your room, okay? Right? It's offensive, period. And that's what his audience would have heard. And then Jesus says, the father does it. Verse 12, so he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son Got together everything that he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. Jesus says not long after that, he leaves town, goes by the condo in Vegas, and throws party after party. Later in the story, we're told it's prostitutes, alcohol, the party. He's blowing his dad's life savings on himself. Verse 14, after he had spent everything he had, there was a severe famine that hit the whole country, and he began to be in need. So not only does he run out of money, a famine, which would be like a great recession, hits the country. It's not great times. So in order to meet ends or make ends meet, verse 15, he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to feed his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Again, we've got to sit back into what Jesus' audience would have heard here. So Jesus says, you can't find anything to eat. Only job you can get is being a pig keeper. Why is that a big deal? Jewish culture, you were not allowed to touch pigs. You couldn't eat pigs. There was no bacon back then. You didn't get any of that. And so his audience would have heard, man, this is a worst case scenario. He becomes ceremonially unclean. He's touching pigs. You're commanded not to have anything to do with that. And that's the only job you can find. This is a worst case scenario they would have heard. And here's what else they would have heard. Had Jesus stopped the story right there, the audience would have thought, that's exactly what happens. You rebel against your father. You disrespect. You do that through your actions, your behavior. You're going to reap what you sow and you get what you deserve. He should be feeding the pigs and starving to death right there. And the center group would have heard, man, it's like my life. Made some decisions. Found myself in a place that I don't want to be. That's just how life goes, right? And Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, when he came to his senses, sitting there staring at the pig food, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He says, man, I'm starving. I go back. I know being a son is off the table, but maybe he'll allow me to come back in and kind of be a servant and I could enter back into the estate in that way. And he begins to think through, like, man, I'm gonna, he's speech writing, essentially. Like, here's what I'm going to say. He's planning it all out. I'm going to go back. I need to really apologize. I'm going to say, Dad, man, I'm so sorry for what I, oh, no, that's not good. Dad, oh, I, I'm ashamed. I, I am an embarrassed. No, that's not it. Father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's the one. Write it down. Gets his speech ready. Picks himself up. He goes back to his father. So he got up and he went to his father. Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, 
his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. This is where Jesus looks into the eyes of his audience and says, none of you really understand what God is like. On your worst day, when you've done and made decisions that you know were wrong, that you regret, maybe you don't even know that you're wrong and you don't even really regret them and you're running from God and you want nothing to do with them in life, when you look in God's direction, do you know what he feels for you? Compassion. Not disappointment. Not anger. Not rejection. Compassion. Think about that. I know inside of the room, there are a lot of us that when we think God looks in our direction, he probably thinks a lot of things, but compassion? And Jesus says, you don't know what God is like. He says that the father ran to his son, which further would have made the audience go, he ran? That, doesn't, that feels like, you know, normal to us today. Like dads run all the time. Somebody went on a jog this morning. In this culture, a patriarch didn't run. He would never run. It would be a sign of a servant to run. Part of which was because like in that culture, you would have worn essentially a long robe kind of dress like thing. So for a father to run, would be hiking up to take off after. And he says he ran after his son and he threw his arms around him. Again, uh, if you read the Old Testament, you'll be introduced to when things are unclean, you shouldn't even touch them. His son had been with prostitutes and pigs. You can't hug him. And he throws his arms around him. He's bear hugging him. And his audience would have been thinking, this is, what is going on? And I think with a smile, I don't know this, on Jesus' face, he said and added, and he kissed him. And he welcomes him back, and the son launches into his speech. He says, Father, I've sinned, verse 21, against heaven and against you. I'm no, wor- no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cuts it off. Doesn't even let him finish the speech. He says, quick, bring me best robe we have and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. A ring, a robe, and sandals all were marks of sonship. Servants didn't have sandals. Servants didn't get the signet ring, which would have basically said, I'm a part of the family. It's got the family crest on top of it. The best robe that we have, throw it on him. Immediately restored as a son. Take the fattened calf, the best delicacy we have, and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine, he was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Jesus says, before the son did anything right. It wasn't, hey, all right, hey, well, if you want to really apologize for what you did, we can talk about it. It wasn't, hey, no, I mean, after you go to rehab, after you get things together, then we'll talk about you come back to the family. Or, hey, after you really prove this is not just some one-off instance, but you prove how sorry you were, you show me that it's actually real, you show a little real long-standing life change. No, none of that. He says, you immediately restored back into the family. And Jesus says, that's what God is like. Second idea, as simple as it is, is that bad behavior doesn't stop God's love. Regardless of what you've done, he couldn't love you more. There's nothing that you could do that would make him love you less. And if you're thinking, man, you don't know what I've done. I got stuff I know if there's a God, 
He can't want anything to do with me. That's the point of the story. This was a worst case scenario. Couldn't have gotten worse than the decisions and the behavior that he made. And he said, despite all of that, Father rushes out. Because bad behavior doesn't stop God's love for you. And you know what God's most concern, pressing thing for people who are running from him or people who haven't turned to him and trusted in him through faith? It's not their sexuality. It's not who they're living with. It's not uh, the decisions that they made today. It's one thing. It's being restored to their father above anything else. It's not similar to this. Uh, about a year ago, over Labor Day, my family had like a reunion in Atlanta. And we got extended family together. And while we were there, we um, had been told Atlanta has one of the best aquariums in the world. Who knew? Apparently only Japan beats it out. But, so we were told, you got to go see it. Got the family together. Go to see it. Apparently everybody else in the entire world had the same idea. Because I've never seen in a place so packed as that was before, clearly before COVID. And as we're there, we're going in. And if you have little kids, man, this is just for you. We're on the same page here. When you go into a really crowded environment, you know that it's like an obstacle course with children, like little kids, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like where you're like, hey, I need you to hold on to the stroller. Your sister's stroller, you lock it on there. We're going to get through this. And you're trying to weave through the obstacle course and keep all the kids just kind of connected together. And you hold on. I've never had more compassion for people who put leashes on their kids and never thought that I really need to consider doing that than women who are in that environment. Because there's just so many people, you can't see everything. You're like, hold on. And um, uh, man, I, I'm having fun. Anyways. In that moment, we're walking through, and I'm telling my son, you hold on to the side of your sister's stroller. Keep walking. And he does what, at that point, he was three, so he did what three-year-olds do, which is like, oh, squirrel, gone. And in a blink of an eye, my wife and I are going, where's our son? His name is Crew. Where's our son? Where did he go? Did you see him? Did you see him? Did you see him? And we begin to scramble. And parents, you've been there where your like, heart begins to panic. You're like, where could he possibly be? He's got to be somewhere near here. We're looking everywhere. I'm like beginning to jog through around people, trying to look down to see if I can see a you know, 36-inch kid anywhere around us. And it felt like an hour. It probably was only a matter of minutes. But eventually, out of the corner of my eye, I look up. And across kind of this large auditorium that they had, through a crowd of people, I see my son holding the hand of somebody who's working there and just tears flooding down his face. And I can tell she's bent over and trying to find, like, what do your parents look like? I run over and I grab him. You know what didn't go through my mind that entire time I was separated from him? Well, reap what you sow, buddy. You should have listened to me. I told you to hold on. This is, I hope you learn your lesson here. Hope you find somebody nice to adopt you. <laughs> nope, not once. Yeah, we got rules in my house. Like, you got to do certain things. It's like every house has rules where, hey, when somebody gives you something, you say thank you. When you want something, you say please. When people talk to you, you look them in the eye. You don't punch your sister. There's a list. You know what never went through my mind? <laughs> I don't know where he is, but he better not be punching anybody's sister, and he better be saying please and thank you when people talk to him. One thing, where's my son? I'm separated from my son. I couldn't think about anything else. I wasn't going to go and stop until I was restored to my son. And Jesus looks into the eyes of his audience and he would look in the eyes of this one and says, do you know that's exactly how God is? 
your decisions, your behavior, those don't make you stop loving you. You may experience, when you run from God, you leave God, you'll experience less of his love. But he never stops loving you. Because bad behavior doesn't change. It doesn't stop. God's love. Meanwhile, verse 25, Jesus just keeps going with the story. The older brother, or the older son, was in the field. Because remember, Jesus said there were two sons. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. I don't know what kind of party you're having, but if you can hear dancing from out in the field, that, you are, that is a party. Or you're doing tap dancing or something is going on. Because if you can hear that all the way outside and he says, I can hear it, there's clearly a party going on in there. He calls for somebody to come tell him what's going on. The servant comes back and said, your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Verse 28. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. The father's response is compassion and love and care and excitement. And the older brother's response was anger and bitterness and apathy. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Man, Jesus is such a good storyteller. So brilliant. You notice the parallel. The father goes out of the house two times. And gently pleads with his son. The word plead is the same word for entreat. It's like speaking tenderly to him. The son responds, Look, all of these years, verse 29, I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered the property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf. Look at the language he uses. He doesn't say father. He says, look. He doesn't say my brother. He says, when this son of yours, he says, I'm a slave. He saw himself as a slave. In other words, all these years, despite being obedient, despite being around the father's farm, Despite never leaving it, he never got to know the Father's heart. He didn't look like the Heavenly Father. He didn't look like this Father. He's angry. He's bitter. And the Father says, verse 31, my son, if you take notes in your Bible, you can, you can make a note. That, that is the first time the word there for son is used. Every other time, it's uh, not this one. This word is the word technon. It's the word for my child. It's really tender. You are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He says, everything I have is yours, my child. In other words, this doesn't change how I feel about you. You think that I loved you more because you, you never left? You think that I love you more because of the good things that you've done? You think that your good behavior is how you earn love? At this point, Jesus is speaking, I think, I don't know how you could think anything else, right at the Pharisees. 
I don't mean directionally looking. I mean just tenderly talking to a group that, you know, often we think of the Pharisees and they're kind of like the arch nemesis, the bad guys of the Bible. That's not how Jesus thought of them. Jesus loved the Pharisees. He gave his life for the Pharisees. He wanted them to know what their heavenly father was actually like, and he speaks right at them. I mean, this group who had mastered the art of being a good religious person. When I say that, they are far better than anybody in this room, anybody on staff, anybody you've ever met. Why do I say that? Because to be a Pharisee, you're a professional religious person. Business card, you know, I worship God 24-7. They had memorized the first five books of the New Testament, I mean, the Old Testament. Memorized. Most of us, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. Most of us are like, oh man, it's a little, little heavy to get through. They had put them to memory. They were so... Uh, uh, strict about avoiding sexual temptation that they were written about to be called bleeding Pharisees. Why? Because they would walk around in order to avoid sexual temptation. They wouldn't look up to not see another woman around. So they would only look at the ground, which led to them bumping into walls and being known as bleeding Pharisees. This group, in the midst of all they had done for God, thought that their good behavior would earn them a relationship with God earned God's love, had earned God's favor. And Jesus says, you don't know what God is like. Good behavior, the third point, doesn't earn God's love. We think in terms, John even kind of said this earlier, we think in terms of performance. We're like, hey man, if I read enough Bible this week, if I, you know, uh, lived out everything God told me to do this week, man, I'm in a good place. God's for me. Everything's great. If I'm not, then, you know, karma is going to come around and may get struck by a lightning bolt. Just want to be in a good place. We think in terms of performance. God doesn't think that way, Jesus would say. God thinks in terms of position. Son, restored, lost. Lost and found, son, or not restored to him. And he looks out and he says, you think that I love you more because of the actions that you do? You don't understand what God is like. Now, there's two things that I think probably for most of us who've been in church for a long time that we can pull away really quickly from this older brother scenario. I think there's a lot of us in the room that really don't believe that God doesn't operate like performance. Good behavior, good behavior doesn't earn his love and bad behavior doesn't stop that. Because if we did believe that, there would be a confidence and a comfortability as it relates to our relationship with God that would likely mark us. What do I mean by that? Like the relationship a parent has with their child, even the child, if they see themselves as like, yeah, that's my dad, that's my mom. They feel a comfort and a confidence when they know, man, they love me. They care about me not walking on eggshells, don't have to be really careful. I can approach them because they're my dad. They're my mom. They care about me, especially if it's a good father and a good mother. And few of us, I think, when it comes to us approaching God, talking to him in prayer, just our lifestyle, what we think about when we think about our heavenly father, we don't think of him that way. Like we, we think of him like he's kind of some distant, you know, he cares about me, but I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm not blood. I'm not his, his child. Even in our prayer life, like, like some of us, the way that you pray, you, you shift into, let me, uh, here's an illustration. Let me help it. 
Whenever um, you were a kid growing up or, you know, if your neighbor has kids and your kids come over to your house, there's a distinct difference between the way that a child talks to their parent about something they need and the way that a neighbor kid or a friend of your child talks to you. You know what I mean by that? Like the neighbor or the kid who doesn't, you know, who's not your child is going to come in and be like, um, <clears throat> Mrs. Smith, would you mind if I could have something to drink? Like they're on uh, Downton Abbey or something. Please, may. Versus a child. A child's not going to go, Mom, can I please have something to drink? And Mom, we ain't got no Capri Sun. When are we going to the store? Right? But some of us, as it relates to like the way we think about God, we don't feel comfortability and we don't feel confident. And I know that they love me and I can go to them with anything I want. We feel like, um, please, God, if you could help me with rent this month. That would be not too busy. And I would love more patience in COVID. And, and it's... It, it's a reflection of it. I mean it. I'm, I'm, I know I'm being playful. I don't think you see yourself as God's child. I know there's areas in my heart where I don't. And I don't believe it. The things that Jesus says, man, that's what God is like. Really true. Could it be true? And Jesus would say, yes, it is. God's love for you is not determined by what you've done or by what you do. He couldn't love you more. Nothing you could do could make him love you less. And he's invited all of us. Are we going to have the heart of the Father? As it relates to people who are lost in our world, or the heart of the elder brother, who's apathetic, who didn't care, who didn't run out to his brother, wasn't concerned about what his father was concerned about, didn't value the things his father valued. And so I don't know where... The questions I walk away from the text is going, God, will you help me to see and believe what you say about me is true? Will you help me to have the heart of the Father that is focused on what is lost, not on what is found? In conclusion, God values when lost, and those who are lost are restored back to him. Bad behavior doesn't stop his love. Good behavior doesn't earn his love. And we have a chance to be those who share the heart of the Father for a world full of lost Men and women. I, um, when I was preparing this message, I got an Amber Alert. Amber Alert is one of those things that it's been around actually for a number of years, but uh, through invention of the smartphone, it's, it just seems to be much more prevalent. You guys know what an Amber Alert, follow me on that? It kind of blows your phone up. In that moment, um, an Amber Alert was actually started or connected to the death of a girl in 1996 in Dallas named Amber. And her parents, at that time, there was no Amber Alert. She went missing and tragically was found dead three days later. And that began an increasing push for we need a mass communication and ability to communicate if there is a, a child that's been abducted or taken or missing. And they came up with certain criteria. If there's going to be an Amber Alert, they have to meet certain criteria. They have to be a child. They have to be in significant threat of, of their life or just danger. And they have to be separated from their parent. There's a common response, I think, that happens almost universally when an Amber Alert happens. It goes off. If it went off right now, what would we do? Quick, we move to silence it. Just kind of in the moment, you're like, oh, silence that. That is, unless it's your child that's missing. Or the child of somebody that you know, of somebody who you're connected to, of a friend, of somebody in your family, you, you would more quickly go, hey, everybody needs to know about this. Please read that Amber Alert. If you see any details on this, there's a very different response that happens. 
What Jesus says is that from heaven's perspective, it's like God is sending out to humanity. There's an amber alert. An amber alert for any person who's been separated from him, their heavenly father. And he's not going to stop looking like no parent would stop looking for their child until they're found. He's not going to stop going after them. And you and I have a chance to either be people who go, oh, that's nice, God. I'm sorry you lost those people. Or share in the heart of a father, not the heart of an elder brother who cares about what God cares about. And pursuing people that are far from him because God has an Amber alert. He's got a Sarah alert, David alert, Kyle alert, Kevin alert. And he's not stopping and won't stop. And he won't let it stop or end until that person is restored to him. The most reckless person in the story is not the son, it's the father. As As has been pointed out by at least Tim Keller, it may have been somebody else. The word prodigal son is not a great capturing of of really the story because the word prodigal in the definition in the dictionary, if you look it up, is, is not wayward, the first thing that you'll see. It's recklessly extravagant and lavish with resources or spending. It's a person who says, whatever the cost, I'm in. Maybe a better title for it is, it's been pointed out, is the prodigal father because the most recklessly extravagant, whatever the cost, I'll go to that length, I'll never stop until I'm restored to those far from me. He's the prodigal who would go to such a length, recklessly extravagant with resources that whatever the cost, I'll pay it. Even the life of my own son, I'll pay it. That's how much he valued you. That's how much he valued me. That's how much he values every person who's ever lived on the planet. Every person you ever see eyeball to eyeball with today as you go about your day and you run your errands. Every single one of them is someone who God says, I got an amber alert out on them. If they are not restored to me and there's someone who's so valuable to me, I don't just throw a party in heaven. I gave the life of my son. And I got to walk away and go, God, do, do I have the heart of the father? who sees like that, who's concerned like that, or do I have the heart of the older brother who just wants to move about my day, doesn't care about what you care about? Will you help me to make me more like you? Understand more what God is like. If you have a prodigal son in the room or a prodigal daughter, someone who's been running, You can rest knowing God's not done. God is pursuing that person. God loves that person and with intensity is going after that person. If you are a prodigal, son or daughter, God's not done. And with intensity, he's going after you, even the fact that you're here, listening. It's him saying, I love you. I gave my life for you. I value you. And that love will never go away. And that love, nothing you will do will stop it. And nothing you could do could increase it. And I'm inviting you to accept that by trusting in what I did on the cross. To seal that. Let me pray. Father, thank you that no matter the story of our life, you love us. You've proven that love by going to the greatest length that you could possible, recklessly. You are a prodigal father. I pray for friends who are discouraged because a son or daughter is running and that they would find a comfort that your heart breaks as much as theirs does. 
that you're not done, and I pray that they would return to you and they would trust in you and that a celebration in heaven that we can't even see right now would just erupt over and over. Maybe for some people right now today, as they put their trust in you for the very first time, they recognize I'm a sinner. I can't earn a relationship with God. I can accept what you did, dying in my place on the cross, rising from the dead, paying for everything I've done, and I accept that. And would now, even now, the heavenly realms be erupting with joy. Give us all the heart of the Father, God. We love you. Amen.